0: you worship team. If you'd open your Bibles to 1st John chapter 5, we're going to continue through this amazing little book. I trust that with me you've been challenged and encouraged and hopefully all we've been instructed by what God has written for us, his inspired word. I'm going to be reading the first 12 verses of 1st John chapter 5 and then we'll see what God has for us. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and the blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, That he has, but he has borne witness concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has a witness in himself. And the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he's not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. And the witness is this. That God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has a son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. Let's pray. Lord, once again we come confessing our weakness, our helplessness, to understand your truth on our own. Lord, we can approach this academically, and we can approach this with the sense of knowledge of content, but Lord, really, we can't even understand these words in the extreme reality of what they proclaim without your Spirit. So please teach us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 5, it's not hard to see as we read through this. It depicts the victorious life. Now the Bible uses many terms to describe those who have entered into a personal relationship with Jesus. For example, we're called Christians in the book of Acts. We're also called children of God, John 1.12. Children of the light, Ephesians 5.8. We're also considered children of the day, 1 Thessalonians 5.5. 5. Children of obedience, 1 Peter 1.14. But there's another title in the New Testament. It may be as exciting as any other. It's probably one you don't think of a lot. Maybe one you don't lose, use a lot. It's an overcomer. The Bible calls you as a Christian an overcomer. Well, what's the definition? 1 John 5.1. Whoever believes that Jesus is... Is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child, born of him. And if you go to verse 4 again, we see it here. For whatever is born of God, there's the thread from first one, overcomes the world. Verse 5 and who is the one who overcomes the world? Overcomer. The word literally means victor. It's the idea to conquer, to have victory, to have superiority over an enemy. You and I are called as Christians, overcomers, victors, more than conquerors. That's who we are. And this is demonstrated, a form of the word is used by Jesus in John 16, where he said, I have overcome the world. It's a word of victory. Jesus, in effect, said, I've conquered Satan's system, this world system, and he says to you and I, since we are in Christ, since our life is hidden in Christ, we partake of this victory. The believer then is a victor. And those who are born of God are true overcomers. Well, then the question would come, and I think it's a legitimate one, what do we overcome? If I'm an overcomer, if you're saying I'm a victor, what do I have victory over? It doesn't really feel like I live in victory. It feels like my life is marked by defeat. Well, let First John remind you, you and I are overcomers. The scriptures tell us, first of all, that we've overcome Satan. One of the things Christians have overcome is this demonic realm. We are victors. Now, it seems like Satan has victory, but ultimately he won't. Revelation 6-2 uses a form of this Greek word for overcomer. When it tells us this white horse who we know later is to be Satan in this context, it appears he has an initial victory. And he'll cause some devastating things for sure in the tribulation. But then as we go to Revelation thirteen, we begin to see something change. Revelation thirteen seven says this it was given to him to make war, him being the, the beast in this context, or Satan, to make war with the saints and to overcome them in authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So Satan will make war against the saints. And he seems to overcome them. But that's not the whole story. Ultimately, the Bible tells us that saints are going to triumph over Satan. And that's why we need to turn to Revelation 12.11 back there. Because we have the promise, we have the hope. It's really what we just celebrated in communion. They overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. That's pretty good, just that, that and all that alone. And because of the word of their testimony, they did not love their life even to death. You and I are overcomers because of the blood of the Lamb. And we go to Revelation 15, 2. We read about a scene in heaven which is glorious. Part of that scene, John says, "...and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass." holding harps of God it points to the fact that saints overcome satan in a demonic realm we're victors that's why paul in romans 16:20 said and the god of peace will soon crush satan under his feet in other words ultimately victory has already been won and that's a victory we need to regularly appropriate into our life Okay, so you're an overcomer and ultimately we're going to overcome Satan in the demonic realm. And even now we have victory. We don't need to live in bondage. We don't need to live succumbed to the demonic realm. You and I have been been given victory. But it's not just victory over Satan. We're promised victory over death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality... Then we'll come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your Your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Believers conquer death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a hope of eternal life. John has really tried to hammer that home. That those who are in Christ experience eternal life. Victory. You and I rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has secured for us victory over death. But that's not all. If we go back to 1 John 4, we see another element of what we have victory over. For, verse 4 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. The world. The believer is a victor over the invisible spiritual system of evil that operates in the world, that captures men's souls. And when you and I are saved, we are removed out of the clutches of Satan, out of the hellish demonic attacks, and we're reserved for heaven. The believer has conquered the system in Christ. James 4, 4-5 makes a hard-hitting proclamation. He says, you and I are not to have friendship with the world. Why? Because it's that world we've conquered. It's that world we've overcome. Why would you become a friend of something that will hold you in bondage when Jesus says you've overcome that? That makes no sense. That's what James is trying to get at in James 4. You and I are overcomers. We don't have a friendship with the world. We've overcome the world. It does remind us though that it is a spiritual battle, isn't it? Day in and day out. We're assaulted from this world system. And if we look closely in verse 4, whatever is born of God, you'll find a present tense. It means Christians are to be living regularly, continually having victory over the world. Positionally, we've conquered Satan, death, and the world. And from a practical standpoint, we need to exercise and to claim that victory on a day-to-day basis. But make no mistake, believer, you're an overcomer. The Scriptures testify to this. And it begins to give a description, John does, of who are these overcomers. Look at the first five verses again. We see in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, whoever is born of God, whoever loves the Father, loves the children born of Him, or the child born of Him. We go on to read, by this we know that we love the children of God, we love God and observe His commandments. Then he gets to verse five, 4, but whatever is born of God overcomes the world, this is a victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The first description of an overcomer, and to... To, John defines it, and for us to evaluate ourselves whether we're even an overcomer, is this. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? What, who over, is it that overcomes the world? Our faith. And John is really hammered at home throughout the book. The source of eternal life, the source of victory, the source of forgiveness is a faith in Jesus Christ. Him and him alone. Overcomers are people born of God. People who've put their faith in God. We are overcomers by the act of believing. Believing that Jesus is the anointed one. He's come from God. It's a total, ongoing trust. Not a one-time decision. There are so many that teach it's just a one-time decision. That you believe that Jesus died for you. You make that one-time decision and you're cut off from the rest of your life. There's no connection to it. John says, no, no, no. A true believer, if he really believes, there will be an ongoing trust and faith, and not just Jesus to save in the moment, but Jesus to do a saving, sanctifying work throughout our life and ultimately to experience that victory with him forever. Christian's victory is based on the reality that Jesus is the Christ. He is who he claimed to be, and faith is directed towards him. And only those who direct their faith towards him are overcomers, because only Christ has the power to come through. Only Christ has the power to deliver when my oldest daughter, Angela, was little, um, she was my little basketball buddy. I'd played in a lot of tournaments and men's league and stuff, and, and Angela was there, little Angela running around and grabbing the ball, and just I'd see her at the curb sitting watching the tournaments. She's in a lot of pictures I have with my teammates. Angela was my little basketball buddy. I could tell her, you know what, Angela, you could dunk it. You could dunk the basketball. And she said, no, I can't, Daddy there's no way. And I said, yeah, you can do it. Because I knew something she didn't. I knew I was strong enough to lift her up so she could dunk it. And she didn't know that at first. And she didn't know that there was a strength available to her to rise above her limitations, to rise above what she would certainly struggle at, and that I could lift her up. That my strength was enough for her to overcome her doubt and her inabilities and her limitations. Let me tell you, only Christ has a power enough to save you. Only Christ has the power to lift you above all your limitations, all your inabilities, all your doubts. Only he can save. Faith in Christ describes, this first description John gives, of an overcomer. He gives another one. We see it in verse 1 and 5. Love. A love for Jesus Christ. Overcomers love God. Also those born of God, we love not only God, but we've talked about in the past, they love the brethren. They love those who are in Christ. A deep and abiding love for Christ brings practical victory over love, lures and enticements of the world. It's clearly seen that all the other quote-unquote loves fail. They'll never come through. Do you ever know that's why Jesus, one of the, or God in one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other idols? Often we look at that and we're restrictive. But God knew something. He says all those other idols and loves, they'll never come through for you. So don't worship other idols. They're going to let you down. Any other loves directed towards anything else, it's going to fail. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Why? Because God says I'll never fail you. A love for God, a love for Christ is a description of an overcomer loving Him. Practically, that's seen in us recognizing our day-to-day life that all the other lures and enticements of the world, they're going to fail. And our heart's delight is only in His love, in His forgiveness, in His grace. John's not done, as we've discussed in the past, he gives another description of an overcoming in verse 2 and 3. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. Commandments are not burdensome. It's an obedience to Jesus that describes an overcomer. There's an internal obedience. We see this faith and this love and obedience they're woven together. In verse 2 and 3, he ties love and obedience together. Jesus in John 14, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. Obedience and love are merged and woven together here. God wants obedience that's internally motivated. Not externally, Romans six seventeen through eighteen. I read this because it, Paul talks about this, just in case you want to know if there's another place that it's addressed. But notice where he talks about this internal obedience, Romans six six verse seventeen through eighteen. We read this, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart. To the form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Notice the internal motivation, you become obedient from the heart. This wasn't a superficial obedience. It was an obedience that was internal. It was total obedience that God calls for. God's not impressed with three out of four. God's not impressed when we say, you know what, I'm doing okay in these three, but there's this fourth thing I'd rather not, God's not saying, hey, 75%, your teacher allows it, maybe I'll allow it. You know, he calls us to total obedience. He calls us to constant obedience, not simply when we feel like it. God's not honored when we say, hey, life's tough. God, I got all these struggles going on their health and their financial and all these things. Certainly you understand if I'm going to go it alone for a little bit. God says, no, I'm not impressed at all with that. I I, I can meet you in your struggles, I can lift you up over them, but what I require, what an overcomer does, is constant obedience. And I would add this one, and let's be honest, this can be hard, cheerful obedience. He says his commands are not burdensome. Isn't there a difference? I mean, if you say to your children, hey, go wash the dishes, not often do they say, Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. It's a joy. Because, Dad, your command's not burdensome. I got children like that. Well, maybe not all the time. But, but wouldn't it be good if we lived that way? When we read God's commands, we don't look at restrictive. We said, Lord, I'd love to obey because I know it's how I'm going to live an overcoming life. And I know ultimately it shows my love to you. But it seems so foreign to the way we live our practical lives that when we were children and as our children live. But let's not only do that with our parents, earthly parents, but certainly let's have a cheerful obedience to our Heavenly Father. 1st john John's been very direct about what a true believer is as opposed to those who simply claim they are. Faith in Christ that he's the anointed one, that he came in the flesh. A love for Christ, an obedience to Christ that's ongoing and committed. Let me ask you, are you an overcomer? Does this describe your life? Because John says if it doesn't, you're not living an overcoming life. He knows it, and I would suspect you know it. This is a description. But then we have this witness. I love the, the way God writes his word. It just amazes me, always does. But there's this witness to an overcomer. Now notice, as we get to verses 6 through 12, there's a word, a phrase repeated, witness. It is the Spirit. All right, back, better back up. Verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. And this is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that bear witness. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For the witness of God is this, that he is born witness concerning his son. Verse 10 The one who believes in the son of God has the witness in himself. It seems like there's some kind of witness here somewhere that we should maybe pay attention to. And let's look at it. There's a consistent witness. The first witness is water in the blood. Now, initially, this seems confusing. You're not alone. <laughs> Let me give you three popular interpretations, and these are only three. Some pretty godly people ascribe to some of these different ones. First, some feel these words refer to baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we could see why they would think this, right? Water and then blood. I mean, we we celebrate communion, and and water we tend to associate with baptism. The problem is, this doesn't seem like it's referring to a continual event, but a one-time thing. Also, Celebration of Communion is usually referred referred to referred to as in terms of bread and the wine. So I'm not sure that that would be accurate. Second, some believe that water is sometimes an image to depict cleansing power of the Word of God. And if water refers to the Word of God and blood refers to the blood of Jesus, his death, and later when John adds that the Holy Spirit is involved in this witness. We could have a picture of the Trinity, the Word, the Father, and the death of the Son, and the empowerment of the Spirit. I think it's a nice idea, but I think really that's maybe what John's not driving at. Remember, context in Scripture is significant. And I think right here it becomes even more so. To me, the most likely meaning for water and the blood is probably the baptism and death of Jesus Christ. Remember, John's confronting a popular and pervasive heresy called Gnosticism. The Gnosticists believed that God, in a sense, borrowed the body of Jesus. They said God took control of Jesus at his baptism and took him out before he was crucified. Gnostics, whom John refutes throughout this letter, they taught that Jesus was a mere man upon whom the Christ descended at his baptism and, and from whom the Christ departed before his death. These false teachers, they could not conceive of how a Redeemer a divine Savior, would have died on the cross. And to refute this heresy, John shows that Jesus was the Christ, God's anointed before his baptism, where the fact was authenticated by the Spirit, because that word came implies that he came to earth from heaven. And since the Gnostics agreed that Jesus was the Christ at his baptism, John adds, not with water only, but with the blood. In other words, his death. He wasn't Christ who just kind of came down at his baptism and took off before his death. He came and was Christ at his baptism. Indeed, he came throughout his life, but it was only the witness of just the water. It was the witness of the blood. That he was still a divine savior as he hung on that cross. This is to say that he was a Christ during and after his crucifixion. The water and the blood were a witness. Verse 7, we see the Spirit it's the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. The Spirit bears witness to Jesus Christ, just as Jesus promised. We read about it in John 15 and John 16. He will testify of me, Jesus said of the Spirit. The Spirit will glorify me. The consistent witness of the Holy Spirit is here is Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. You know what? That should be our consistent witness, should it not? The Spirit, it's the Spirit within us. Here is Jesus. He's the Savior of the world. And that's the testimony and witness of the Spirit. We have the witness of the water and the blood. We have the witness of the Spirit. But then he gets into this receiving the witness. How do we receive it? The water and the blood agree and point to Jesus Christ, his death, his life. The Spirit points to Jesus and is a witness to him. They all tell us who Jesus is. But ultimately, there's a sense we need to receive that witness. Verse 9 tells us that. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. We're pretty willing to receive the witness of men, aren't we? We have people we trust who walk up and they'll give us a detailed description of what happened. We'll believe it. If they're reliable, right? Jerry came up and said, Hey, man, I want you to, you know, I saw this incredible event happen. And I know Jerry, I love him, I trust him, I'd believe it. That's good for me. And John's saying, you know what, we're quick to believe the witness of men, but hey, what about the witness of God? In his historical coming to earth, his death, his resurrection, the testimony, the spirit within us, how come we're slow to believe that witness? We're slow to receive that. And we're encouraged to receive that witness. John doesn't want us to believe in blind faith. Instead, our faith should be on a reliable witness, and the most reliable witness is God. In verse 10, is telling us that when we refuse to believe on Jesus, we reject the testimony that God has given us in his Son. Therefore, we've called God a liar with our unbelief. John's exposing this great sin of unbelief. This rejection of God's testimony over time can lead to a place where heart becomes hardened against God. And he sums up the witness in verse 11 through 12. These are rich words. They're words of assurance. God wants you to know you're an overcomer. And he says this. This is a witness that God has given us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son is the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. That's pretty clear. I mean, there's John again being very straightforward. He sums up the witness. The content of the testimony is Jesus Christ when you boil it all down. The bottom line, he who has Jesus Christ, he who has faith in Christ, has life. It's a great promise to you and I. We've overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. Communion's a continual witness every time we take it. Continual witness to who Jesus Christ is and the life we have in him. Because verse 12 identifies who the overcomers are. He who has the son. Overcomers have great assurance. It enables them to live a victorious Christian life. Which leads us to two lessons to close with. First, I want to talk to a believer. You might not feel like you're living an overcoming life. Right now, you might be thinking, I'm sinking. It seems like this maybe has a hole of your life. Or maybe you're struggling with this sin or doubt creeps in. Or it seems like worry seems to be smothering you like a wet blanket. And you're like, I, I, I get the concept of overcoming, but how do I live it out in a the day-to-day? The first thing I would rem- remind you, remember your position in Christ. Remember who you are. You're an overcomer. And you say, well, that sounds like positive thinking. No, it's scriptural thinking. You're an overcomer. It's who you are. It's your identity. Walk in that reality. Live according to that reality. You're a victor, so quit living a defeated life. You're an overcomer. Nothing formed against you shall prevail, we're told. Walk trusting God's witness. And I understand there's a demonic realm. The demonic realm will consistently seek to develop strongholds in your life. And those strongholds are developed when we forget who we are. We see no way out. the way to tear down those strongholds to begin to understand and remember who you are in Christ, your position. Live in the victory. Claim it. Base your decisions on it. Base your decisions on its reality. And I think all of us here would need to be honest. When we reject the testimony of the Spirit, when we reject the testimony of the life and death of Christ, you reject God. Simply. There's no victory for you. I warn you, there's only enslavement, there's only defeat, there's only fear, and there's no hope. And this is no peripheral issue. This is a core issue. It's not enough to have warm feelings about God. It's not enough to tip your hat. It's not enough to be religious or even be knowledgeable about the Christian life. You must entrust yourself to Jesus Christ and receive his witness to believe in the depth of your being Jesus is who he claimed to be and you've given and that he's given his life for you put all your confidence in him have you done that have you surrendered to his lordship we're going to share in a baptism later and baptism proclaims that baptism proclaims that i believe Jesus is who he said he is I've given my life to Him because He gave His life for me. I put my confidence on Him. I've surrendered to His Lordship. And so I go into the waters of baptism. It's a beautiful picture. But I wonder if you sit here if you've ever done that. I wonder if you're willing to do that. You can do that in prayer. We're going to give you that chance in a minute. But if you're here this morning and you claim the name of Jesus as your Savior, you've come to faith in Him, you love Him, you're seeking to walk in obedience to Him. God wants you to know this moment, it's you're an overcomer. This you an overcomer. Let's pray. Lord, as I've gone through this week, I couldn't help but look at myself and got to believe that my brothers and sisters at times maybe think the same thing. Lord, it just gets tiresome to live a defeated life. If we're honest, there's times that we think too highly of ourselves. We try to do it alone. Maybe we've opened ourselves up to lies and schemes and strongholds of the enemy. We find ourselves living in defeat, not victory. And Lord, we may even do the most arrogant thing and shake our fist at you and say, God, it's the circumstances and problems you've allowed in our lives Lord, forgive us for that. It's not the circumstances and problems that are the issue, God. It's our problem. We've not believed the witness of your word. We've not believed the witness of your spirit, the witness of your son, Jesus. We've not believed the witness that we are overcomers in you. And Lord, might this truth this morning change us, that we leave here differently. Because your spirit has taken your word and done something in our hearts and minds, changing us, refocusing us, tearing down all the crutches that are hopelessly futile. And Lord, my heart goes out to those who sit here this morning and they're like, you know, I don't even know who Jesus Christ is. Maybe that's you. You've never trusted him as your savior. You have no hope right now of eternal life. You're guessing. God wants you to know there's no life apart from his son. The good news is you're hearing that this morning. The good news is those who call upon the name of the Lord, the promises you will be saved. That's your offer this morning eternal life with Jesus Christ. If you don't know the Savior, I invite you in this moment, in this place, in your heart, to reach out to Him. I'm going to lead you in prayer. Might this prayer be yours? Your heart, cry out to the Lord. Dear Jesus, I confess I'm helpless. I'm defeated. I'm lost. Without you. But I've heard this morning the witness of your word. The witness of your spirit inside my mind and heart right now. And I choose to trust you as my Savior. I thank you based upon my faith in you that you'll forgive me. That you'll give me eternal life that, Lord, you'll make me an overcomer. Lord, all of us pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.